Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Robert Acosta speaking, the chair of AccessibleWorld.org, and we want to welcome you to another program in our special program series here in the auditorium. The date is Tuesday, July 23, 2013, and we are so pleased to welcome our dear friend, Mr. Ira Fistel, noted scholar and radio talk show host, who will speak to us on the topic, The History of Baseball, Part 1. Ira, the telephone is yours. Well, I think we're going to start uh, tonight what is probably going to be a two- or three-part series on the great American national pastime, baseball. Uh, I can't tell you why I fell in love with baseball when I was about eight years old or so. I know my first game, uh, my cousin, who was a Cub fan, uh, was about ten years older than me, took me to a game when I was about, must have been about seven or eight years old. I think it was 1948 or maybe 49 at Wrigley Field, and the Dodgers were playing the Cubs. And what I remember about that game is Jackie Robinson was playing for the Dodgers, and we sat behind third base, uh, and the Cubs' third baseman was Ransom Jackson. They called him Handsome Ransom Jackson. The Dodgers scored early and often, and by about the fourth inning, I was pretty well uh, baseballed out for the day. I was losing interest. When a train came by television, watching games on television, and I loved the fact that baseball teams traveled around the country, and they traveled by train. And I figured, gee, what a way to go. Uh, you could get to take it anywhere in the country on the train, and you didn't have to pay for it if you were a player or a manager or a, a sports writer or something. Well, I knew I could never be a player because I can't do anything that requires any kind of hand-eye coordination. I can't catch a ball. I can't hit a ball well. And I can't throw the ball. Uh, there's nothing I can do, you know. So I realized I don't have anything to do baseball as a writer or a broadcaster. And guess what? I wound up being a pre-game and post-game for the Los Angeles Dodgers for, I don't know, 10 to 15 years or something like that. And I met all the baseball announcers, you know. It was, it was a wonderful gig. Anyway, I, I fell in love with the game. And by the time I was 10 years old, my mother sent me to some camp. I didn't want to go to summer camp. All I wanted to do was stay home and listen to the White Sox on the radio. <laughs> uh, my one month at summer camp was probably the worst month of my life up to that time. And it still sends, uh, sends shivers down my spine uh, how horrible it was being away from the game. Uh, locked up in a, a wooden cabin in the woods in Wisconsin with nothing much to do. And no radio, oh, that was awful. They came up to uh, see me at, uh, after one month and said, well, don't you want to stay? I said, get me out of here. <laughs> and we went to New York, and that was more like it. That was just great. Anyway, 
The game of baseball. I'm going to start with a little bit about the history of the game. Um, everybody thinks that it was invented by Abner Doubleday in Cooperstown, New York in 1839. That's because that's what the baseball owners wanted you to think. Baseball actually almost certainly derives from a 17th century, 18th century, and 19th century English game called Rounders, which had the basic elements of running bases, and I believe cricket has the bat and ball, so it probably comes from a number of, uh, number of sources. We had a baseball-sponsored commission, however, around 1900, which was set out to, to, by the owners to prove that baseball was an all-American sport. And the reason for that was very, in, very obvious. Huge numbers of immigrants from other countries were coming to the United States in the late 1890s and early 1900s. And immigrants who came to this country wanted to be recognized as Americans. And their kids wanted to be seen as Americans. They didn't want to be Italians. They didn't want to be Russians. They didn't want to be Poles. They wanted to be Americans. And one way to be an American was to identify with this all-American game, baseball. So the commission, which was made up of a couple of retired players and sports writers and old-time old-timers, didn't do any serious research. They just uh, called their memories of what they heard when they were younger. And they came up with the conclusion that it was Abner Doubleday who founded, uh, invented baseball, laid out the first diamond, and played the first game at Cooperstown, New York in 1839. That's why the Hall of Fame is at Cooperstown today. The Hall of Fame just had a bad week. Nobody got it. Nobody got admitted. <laughs> they had a lot of people didn't come to the Hall of Fame you know, this year. But at any rate, the Baseball Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown, and Cooperstown was the perfect setting for this all-American game. A small town in New York State, uh, presumably the model small town of all the small towns in America. Cooperstown is supposed to be a shrine, but it's a shrine to something that never really existed. Um, Abner Doubleday wasn't even in Cooperstown in 1839. He was at the U.S. Military Academy. And I don't know if you know anything about General Abner Doubleday, <clears throat> but he was an officer in the Union Army after going to West Point. He was stationed at Fort Sumter. And when the rebels fired on Fort Sumter in December, was December 1860, the commander of the fort, Major Anderson, told... Doubleday, who was in charge of the artillery, to fire back. And so the first Union shots of the Civil War were fired under the command of Major General Abner Doubleday, who at that time I think was still a captain. He wasn't a Major General yet. Uh, two or three years later, he was a Major General, and he was second in command of the 1st Corps of the Army of the Potomac at the Battle of Gettysburg. And early in the battle, the commander of the First Corps, General Reynolds, was killed by a sharpshooter, a Confederate uh, sharpshooter. And the second in command was Doubleday, and he took over the First Corps. They were being attacked by Confederate troops. And Doubleday, uh, for whatever reason, refused to retreat. 
Now, he went down as a great hero at the Battle of Gettysburg because he didn't retreat. But one of my favorite Civil War historians, <laughs> pardon me, the somewhat cynical Fletcher Pratt, wrote that the reason Doubleday didn't retreat was because he wasn't skilled enough to know how. <laughs> so he had to stay where he was with his troops. Anyway, he went down as a military hero. When they were looking for, um, the commission was looking for a place to say that baseball started and, and they found Cooperstown and Doubleday, it was very convenient for them because General Doubleday had died by that time and couldn't say that it wasn't true. So the commission uh, publicized the story of Abner Doubleday, the inventor of baseball, and the whole thing is a hoax. Well, the game actually probably began probably a recognizable version of what we know today in 1845 in and around New York City. And there was a group of people who called themselves the Knickerbocker Club. Uh, Knickerbocker, of course, was the uh, Washington Irving character, Diedrich Knickerbocker, who uh, Washington Irving had him writing a history of New York. It's satirical and comical. Well, anyway, the Knickerbockers organized a game, um, and they set out rules. And the rules that they set out were recorded, and we still have those original 20 rules or 21 rules. Uh, It's recognizable. A man named Alexander Cartwright, who was the... I guess the head of the club, laid out the bases 90 feet apart. One of the great decisions of all time, because over the, what, 135 years, more than 150 years, uh, it's been clear that 90 feet is the absolutely perfect distance between the bases. If it were 89 feet, runners would be safe nine times out of ten. If it were 91 feet, they'd be out nine times out of ten. And there'd be no close plays at first base or any other base. Why Cartwright had the genius to come up with 90 feet between the bases, I don't know. But it was an incredible decision. He also came up with the idea of nine men on a side. Now that's actually a little bit of a... uh, misnomer these days because in the American League and in all other leagues except the National League there are not nine players on the team at one time there are ten the tenth player being the designated hitter that's only since the 1970s personally I hate the designated hitter rule I think it's ridiculous but uh, it exists and it's not going to go away but the nine men on the team, 90 feet between the bases, nine innings. Baseball is a game of nines. The number nine is the sacred number in baseball. The multiple of nine is 27. Three times nine is 27. And in a regulation nine-inning game, that's how many outs each team has. You have 27 outs over nine innings, three outs per inning. <coughs> Modern statistical analysis regards the 27 outs as a kind of like a holy number that any sacrifice of an out uh, is damaging because you only have 27. Any giving anybody an extra out by an error or something like that 
is very damaging. And we saw that just last night. The White Sox played a game last night against the Detroit Tigers. Uh, the final score was 7-3. to three. But five of Detroit's runs scored because of Chicago errors. They gave the game away. You know, you cannot give extra outs. It extends innings and you get extra base runners, and it's fatal. So uh, that brings us to the way the game is played, and of course that's offense and defense. I'm not going to talk about that right now. Uh, I am going to talk more about the history of the game. From 1845, it was called the New York game. There was another version of it up in Massachusetts where they threw the ball at the runner to put a runner out. That didn't last. At one point, they played with posts, but the runners kept running into the posts and getting concussions. So they got rid of posts and used bags instead. Uh, in the early days, people didn't have gloves. Uh, if you had a glove, it wasn't padded, and it didn't have a big pocket, and it wasn't made out of leather. It was just like a... Uh, you know, it was a winter glove, soft glove. Um, you didn't have all the technical things that you have today, all the equipment and whatever. Catchers didn't have chest protectors, and uh, nobody had masks, and nobody had helmets, batting helmets. Uh, it was a pretty wild game because <laughs> you were still playing with a hard ball. And those guys in those days had to be tough. You know, imagine catching a baseball especially a hard-hit baseball, with nothing but your bare hands. That hurts. All right. The game evolved, however, and it became very popular. And during the Civil War, the two sides were fighting each other, but in prisoner-of-war camps, uh, we played baseball games against each other. People from New York who uh, became prisoners-of-war in the South taught the game to their, to their uh, captors. And people from the South, who were captives in the North, learned the game there. And by 1865, there were town teams growing up all over America, and they played each other. And when there's competition like that, there's a desire to win. Well, how do you win a game if you don't have the better players? Well, you go out and get better players, right? How do you do that? Well, it comes down to money. And people were paying good players to move to their town or work for their company and play baseball. And in 1869, this under-the-table business of paying players, uh, who were supposed to be amateurs, came to a head when in Cincinnati, Ohio, the first openly professional team began to play. They were called the Cincinnati Red Stockings. And the leader of the team was Harry Wright, who was an Englishman by birth and I believe a jeweler by profession. But he was the captain of this team, and the star player was his brother, George. George Wright is almost forgotten by fans today. But he was one of the original stars, probably the biggest original star of baseball. You know, the uh, home run record for so many years was Babe Ruth, 60 home runs in a 154-game season. Well, back in 1869 or so, George Wright 
hit 59 home runs in 60 games. It shows what kind of a player George Wright was. Well, the Cincinnati Reds didn't have a league to play in, the Red Stockings. They played anybody who would play them. They traveled around the country barnstorming, and they'd play anybody they could get to put up a game. And there'd be betting on the games, and that's how they got money. Uh, they won every game they played that season, except one, which was a tie. got dark. So they had a winning streak going, an incredible winning streak of 69 games, when they played a team in Brooklyn who uh, was not really the ancestor of the Dodgers, but it was a Brooklyn team. And there were a lot of tough gamblers in the stands that day watching the game. Cincinnati was ahead in the ninth inning. But the gamblers had put money on Brooklyn, and they were not very happy with the idea of losing. So <laughs> Brooklyn gets a couple of people on base, and the hitter for Brooklyn hits a ball into the left field you know, towards the stands. There were no solid stands in those days. It was just uh, wooden bleachers. And uh, the, these tough gamblers decided they were going to do something to save their bets. They ran out of the stands, and it ran after the Cincinnati outfielder and made him run away. So the ball dropped, and three runs scored, and Brooklyn won the game. <laughs> And that was the end of Cincinnati's 69-game winning streak. Uh, that's the way the game was played in those days. But uh, the attendance and the interest in the game kept rising. And in 1876, the National League of Professional Baseball teams was founded. Um, one of the founders was a man named Morgan Bulkley, and there were some others. And they had franchises in places like Providence and Troy, New York, and New York City, of course. Uh, the original National Baseball League, I believe, had eight teams. Only one of the original teams has played every season in the same city in the same National League since it was founded in 1876. The team has had three different nicknames, but it's the same franchise. They started out as the Chicago, what were they originally? This, oh gosh, it slipped my mind. Um, they became the Chicago Colts after a while, and then eventually they became the Chicago Cubs. And that's the franchise that's still playing in Chicago to this day. The only original franchise still playing in the same city and uh, under the same a continuous uh, franchise. So baseball, as we now know it, uh, has antecedents in the 19th century, including professional baseball. The National League was only one of a number of leagues, but it was the only one that lasted for any length of time. In founded in 1976, uh, it was the a major league, meaning that uh, the players in that league were the best and uh, could not. Uh, well, you couldn't get any better players than what they had. Um, and there were other teams, other leagues. Every town had a team, and they were at lower levels. And the players from those teams could be bought by a major league team from the lower-level owner, and the player would get a share of the money, and he'd move up to a major league team. Well, this is how the game worked for um, 25 years or so. 
until the National League had 12 teams in the late 1890s, and some of them were losing money, and they had a, a syndicate ownership where one owner would own two or three teams in the league. And in 1899, the same owner owned the Cleveland Spiders and the St. Louis Cardinals. I don't think they were the Cardinals in those days. They may have been the Browns. But anyway, uh, that owner decided that he didn't have enough good players for two teams, so he took all the good players from the Cleveland Spiders and put them on his St. Louis team. And the Cleveland Spiders are the worst team in the history of baseball professional baseball. Uh, they won something like 20 games and lost 130, uh, something like that. Uh, the second half of the season, they never played a game at home for obvious reasons. Nobody would go to see them. But while they were in existence, the Cleveland Spiders had a player whose name was Louis Sokolexis. Louis Sokolexis was a full-blooded Penobscot Native American. And he had a short time uh, in the, uh, as a star, as a big star. He hit very well, and he could run, and he could throw. But he had trouble with drinking. And as an alcoholic, he was soon out of the game. However, when the American League set up in 1901 to challenge the National League as the second major league, and this is the beginning of what we call modern baseball to this time, 1901, Cleveland franchise had been dumped by the National League after the Spiders were so terrible, along with the Louisville team and a couple of others. So the National League went from 12 teams to 8. The new founders of the American League, <clears throat> who were Ban Johnson, Byron Bancroft Johnson, a former sports writer, and Charles Comiskey, who owned the Chicago franchise, uh, which came to be known as the White Sox after the original White Stockings. That was what the Cubs were first called. I knew I'd remember it. They were first called the White Stockings, just as the Cincinnati team was called the Red Stockings. For the same reason, the color of their socks. Well, anyway, Comiskey and Johnson saw the National League dumping those four franchises as a chance for their new American League to declare itself a major league. And in 1901, they did. And they announced that their players were not subject to being bought by the National League, that their contracts would be inviolable. And they set up shop and became a second major league. And that was the structure of the major leagues from 1901 right down to 1952. There were no changes in the leagues with one or two small exceptions. One of the exceptions was that about 1903, the original Baltimore franchise in the American League moved to New York and became known as the New York Highlanders because they played in Upper Manhattan, which has big, tall hills, and they played on a hill there. They were called the Highlanders. And something like 15 years later, they changed their name to the New York Yankees and acquired a player named Babe Ruth, and the rest of these is history. But other than the franchise shift that brought the uh, Baltimore team to New York, uh, the teams remained the same for the next 50 years. Baseball continued to grow in popularity, and it particularly attracted young people and the immigrants who wanted an American game. And in 1902, 
1901, uh, the second league was founded. The National League continued to say, we're the only major league. We won't play you guys. Uh, you're you're uh, you know, not real major leaguers. And this continued for two years. Every year, uh, the American League champion would challenge the National League champion, and the National League team said, no, we don't want to play. But in 1903, the American League champion was the Boston Pilgrims, a team that later became known as the Red Sox. The American League team challenged the Pittsburgh team of the National League. The Pittsburgh team had gotten the name Pirates because when the Louisville franchise folded after 1899, they had a couple of good players, and one of them they thought they were going to be able to do something with, except that he signed with Pittsburgh in the National League. And the Louisville people were furious, and they said, those people in Pittsburgh are pirates. They stole our player. Well, the player turned out to be Honus Wagner, uh, probably the greatest shortstop of all time, and the team became known as the Pittsburgh Pirates immediately, and they are the Pittsburgh Pirates today. They were owned at that time by a man named Barney Dreyfus, one of the most colorful, most interesting people you'll ever hear about. Barney Dreyfus was not afraid of the challenge of playing an American League team and they could make some money on it. And so when the American League Pilgrims challenged Barney Dreyfus's Pirates, he said, yeah, let's play. When they set up a best five out of nine series, everybody expected Pittsburgh to win, of course, if they were the established National League team. But lo and behold, the Boston Pilgrims beat the Pittsburgh team five games to three. Well, that set off such a tremendous outcry for more of this, quote, World Series, end quote. Uh, the next year, the uh, New York Giants were winning the National League pennant. And the Highlanders, the new team in New York, was having a great season. And the Giants were absolutely apoplectic about the American leagues moving into what they considered their territory. And the owner of the Giants kept saying all year long, we will not play an American League team. What he really meant is we won't play the New York American League team. On the last day of the season, the New York Highlanders needed to win the game to win the pennant and challenge the Giants. And their pitcher was Jack Chesbro, a guy you probably never heard of, who still to this day holds the modern record, 41 wins by a pitcher in one season. Never been done by anybody else before or since. Uh, in the old days, before the turn of the century, there were pitchers who won more than games than that, but the games were far fewer games. It wasn't the same competition. So those records are not considered uh, modern records. Jack Tresbo went out to the mound that day trying for his 42nd victory. And in the ninth inning of the last game of the season, he threw a wild pitch that led in the winning run for the other team, and the Highlanders lost the pennant. <laughs> Boston won. And Boston went on and challenged the New York Giants. Well, the Giants had backed themselves in the corner. They said, we won't play. We won't play an American League team. Well, uh, they meant they didn't want to play the Highlanders. But now they had to say no to the Red Sox or Pilgrims in that time. And 
there was a tremendous outcry from the fans around the country, but there was no World Series in, in 1904. It's the only year that there hasn't been a World Series since 1903, except for the strike year in the late 1970s. Anyway, um, was it 1980s, I think, the late, late 1980s, Any, or early 90s. Anyway, uh, that's when the, the Giants were forced to sit down with the American League owners, and the National League and the American League made a deal that there would be a World Series between the champions of the two leagues every October after the regular season ended, and it was going to be best four out of seven games. And that's, of course, the formula that we have today. So that's when baseball began to look the way it does today. The rules are now standardized. The franchises were standardized. The two leagues were standardized. And the World Series was established, all in a period of a few years, around the turn of the century. Well, in, as baseball was played in those days, the ball was um, frequently dirty. They only used one ball a game. And it was frequently dirty. It was hard to hit. It was hard to see. Sometimes it got lopsided. <laughs> we got hit so hard. Pitchers were allowed to put uh, foreign substances on the ball, like slippery elm or an, scratch the ball with an emery, uh, emery board, or spit on the ball. And doing these things, marking up the baseball like that, made the ball do crazy things. It would be coming in one direction, and then all of a sudden it would go a different direction, and it would be almost impossible to hit. So in those days, there were very few runs scored. And there were a lot of one-to-nothing games and two-to-one games and three-to-two games. And the idea of the home run had not yet caught on. I think one year, somebody led the league with six home runs, something like that. Uh, there weren't home runs. The home runs were very rare. It was a different game in that sense. It was a game of hit and run, and I'll talk about that in just a minute, the hit and run play. It was a game of uh, dominated by pitchers, and there were a lot of errors, again, because the uh, equipment wasn't as good as it is today with the gloves. So what you saw when you went to a game was somewhat different than what you see today. It was much more of a pitcher's game than it is today. The hit-and-run play I just talked about, uh, what a hit-and-run play is, is, that the, is a planned play that depends on the ability of a hitter to place the ball, to hit the ball where he wants to put it and be able to do this consistently. It may, the hit-and-run play is designed to make the defense move to open up a hole for the hitter to hit the ball through. It was devised by the Baltimore Orioles, the legendary Baltimore Orioles of the late 19th century, who had a player named Wee Willie Keeler. Wee Willie Keeler was, I think, five feet five, something like that. He was a tiny little guy, uh, Irishman from Brooklyn. But he had the most uncanny ability any player has ever had to hit the ball where he wanted to hit it. Somebody asked him one day, Willie, what's the secret? Why, why can you uh, get such high batting averages? And he said, I hit them where they ain't. 
and he did. He was able to place the ball. So the Orioles took advantage of this. They had John McGraw, who later became a famous manager, who was a very daring base runner and a tough guy. McGraw was the leadoff man. And Keeler, who had just been acquired from the old Brooklyn team, not the Dodgers, the predecessors, um, Willie Keeler came to Baltimore as an unknown quality. Uh, nobody in the league knew anything about him. So on the opening series of the year, the first game, McGraw gets on first base. Now, McGraw was known as a base runner. He could steal bases. So uh, when McGraw took off on the first or second pitch, whatever it was, the second baseman did what the second baseman always has to do in that time. He goes over to cover second base so the catcher can throw the ball to him. When the second baseman moved as McGraw moved, Keeler hit the ball right through the spot where the second baseman had been playing 30 seconds before. The other team, the Giants, it turned out, the New York Giants, refused to believe that this was a planned play. The Orioles did it again and again and again. And pretty soon, the Orioles had swept all the games of that series, and Keeler and McGraw together had started something you'll still see today, the hit-and-run play that advances a runner by opening a hole for the hitter to hit the ball through. Of course, you don't have to hit. You have to have somebody who can do that. You don't have to have Willie Keeler, but you have to have somebody who can do it, some of the time anyway. So that's one of the early plays, uh, planned plays that you see. Okay, comes 1908, and by this time, the baseball is just becoming so popular all over the country, they would put uh, telegraph, telegraph running accounts of the game, and uh, they'd have a big board and it's outside a department store or something, and with the telegraph messages coming in, they'd move characters around on this board so people could uh, see the way the, the play was developing. 1908, there happened to be two tremendous pennant races, one in each league. And the American League, Detroit, Cleveland, and Chicago all were neck and neck. And in the American League, New York and Chicago, the Giants and the Cubs, and the Pittsburgh Pirates. Okay? <clears throat> so it was a tremendous season, and it turned thousands and thousands of people onto the game. And it ended with one of the most remarkable incidents in the history of the game. Uh, this is the famous Merkel incident. Fred Merkel was an outfielder and first baseman for the Giants, and he was a pretty good player. Uh, they were playing; the Giants were playing the Cubs in September, and it, the game was very close. And whoever won the game was going to take the take first place in the league. It was one to one in the ninth inning. Merkel's on first base. And there's another runner on third base who was the potential winning run. The batter, Al Bridwell of the Giants, hit a ball up the middle of the diamond into center field, and it looked like uh, a base hit and the winning run's going to score. But Johnny Evers, who's the Cubs shortstop, or second baseman, I'm sorry, Cubs second baseman, called for the ball. Somebody threw him a ball. Now, whether it was the same ball, nobody knows. <laughs> but he got a ball from someplace, stepped on second base. Merkel, seeing the hit go to center field, t 
turned back to the dugout and sat down. He never touched second base. The umpire, who was Hank O'Day, called Merkel out on a force play. It was the third play, third out of the inning, and you can't score a run on the third out of the inning. And the run from third, therefore, doesn't count, and the score is still tied. By this time, there are fans on the field. The game couldn't be continued. Uh, they had to call off uh, the game. And after everything, uh, after everything had calmed down, Merkel was, was told, called the biggest boathead in history. He didn't do anything that everybody else didn't do in those days. It was not known that you had, you know, not recognized that you had anyone touch second base in that situation. The reason Evers knew about this and called it, and the reason Hank O'Day, the umpire, called it, was because the same play had come up earlier that season in Pittsburgh. And Evers called for the ball, and the runner didn't come to second base, and Evers touched the bag and called it, force out up, no runs. And Hank O'Day didn't want to call it because it wasn't commonly called in those days. But he checked with the National League office, the president of the National League, and they said, you've got to call it. So that runner was out. Well, when the same play came up again in this red-hot game to decide the pennant, O'Day had no choice but to call it, and he did. Hank O'Day was admitted to the Hall of Fame this week as an umpire, uh, 75 years after his death. But he was the man who made that famous call on Fred Merkel in 1908. The game ended in a tie when they had to replay it later. The Cubs won, and the Cubs won the, won the pennant, and they went on to win the World Series. And that was the last time the Chicago Cubs ever won a World Series. It's only 106 years ago. <laughs> but uh, that's the Chicago Cubs. Okay. So 1908 was a big year. In the American League, the pennant race came down to a game in October. The White Sox had a pitcher named Big Ed Walsh, who in 1908 set a record. You talk about records that will never be broken. Ed Walsh set a record that not only will never be broken, nobody will ever come close to that record. That season, he was a coal miner, came up from Pennsylvania coal mines, and when he got a job in baseball, he said, I am never going back to the coal mines. And he was willing to do anything <laughs> rather than go back to the coal mines. That season, he pitched every day for 11 straight days at the end of the season, winning 11 games. And then on the last day of the, that 11-game stretch, he won two games, pitched both games of a doubleheader. They were his 39th and 40th wins of the season. Only Jack Chesbro with the 41 wins in 1904 has more wins than Ed Walsh's 40 in 1908. They had a day off the next day, and then because it was a Sunday, they didn't play on Sundays. On Monday, October 2nd, Walsh pitched against Addie Joss of the Cleveland Indians, named for Louis Sacalexis, the American League franchise when they went into Cleveland took the name of Louis Sacalexis, the famous original Cleveland Indian, and they are the Cleveland Indians to this day. Addie Joss was probably the best pitcher who is not in the Hall of Fame. He was a terrific pitcher, 
but there's a reason why he wasn't, he's never made it into the Hall of Fame, which was you had to be a 10-year player to, make, to be eligible for the Hall of Fame, and Eddie Joss didn't play 10 years in the major leagues. Why didn't he play 10 years? Because he died. <laughs> he only lived to be 30-something, 30, 30 years old. Kirk was eligible for the Hall of Fame because he didn't play 10 years. I believe he's now in there, but uh, anyway, he was a terrific pitcher. Ed Walsh that day, after working 11 days in a row and one day off, gave up four infield hits and one unearned run in the game. And he lost one to nothing because Andy Joss pitched a perfect game against him that day. The perfect game means 27 batters up, not one of whom reaches base, 27 outs in a row, and nobody reaches base. There have only been something like 19 perfect games in the history of Major League Baseball, and that was one of them. Fabulous, fabulous story. Each league had a championship decided in a remarkable game that same season. Well, there are so many great games to talk about. I'm not going to do all of that now. I tell baseball stories forever. And one of these days, when we do one of these things, I'll, I'll devote the whole thing to some, to some of the great baseball stories over the years, some of the great games played and some of the great players. And, but right now I want to talk again more about the history of the game. The so-called dead ball era ended in 1919 when a young fellow from uh, Baltimore, Maryland, whose name was George Herman Ruth, came to the major leagues as a pitcher with the Boston Red Sox in 1915. And he was a very good pitcher. He held for many, many years the record for consecutive scoreless innings by a pitcher in a World Series. He went something like 29 innings without a run, allowing a run in World Series competition. Finally, years and years later, it was broken, but uh, Ruth held it for years. Uh, he was a terrific pitcher. But he also was a terrific hitter. And in 1919, by 1919, Ed Barrow, who was the, uh, running the uh, Boston club, realized that Ruth would be m even more valuable as a hitter than he was as a pitcher. As a pitcher, he could only pitch once every four days. As a hitter, he could be in the lineup every day. And he was in the lineup every day he wasn't pitching in 1919. And he only pitched, uh, I don't know, about 12 games, something like that. But he hit 29 home runs playing every day in the outfield. Nobody had ever hit anywhere near 29 home runs in a season before 1919. Well, the Boston Club was owned by a man named Harry Frazee, who staged Broadway shows for a living. And Harry Frazee wanted to put on a new show, except he didn't have any money. He was out of cash. And he then made the deal that uh, had forever sealed the hatred between the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox, between the city of New York and the city of Boston. Boston already had a uh, crow to pluck with, with New York because after uh, the Erie Canal was built, Boston declined as a great city, and New York became much bigger and much richer. Uh, so Boston was chosen from New York in the first place. Harry Frazee, the owner of the Red Sox, sold Babe Ruth's contract to the Yankees 
for $125,000 and a, a loan. And he used the loan to put on a new show. The show had a hit song in it. T for two and two for T and me for you and you for me. Ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. That song was made possible by the sale of Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. Ruth got to New York. Barrow came along with him to run the Yankees. The owner of the Yankees was a man named Jacob Rupert, who was a German brewer who never learned to speak English well. He couldn't say Ruth. He called him Ruth because <laughs> he couldn't pronounce the T-H. Uh, but Babe Ruth became a sensation. There was another reason why Ruth was so important to baseball, and that was the series, season of 1919. You know, anything at all about baseball, and if you've seen the movie The Great Gatsby or read the book or heard the stories of The Great Gatsby, in Gatsby there is a character called Meyer Wolfsheim in the book, and Nick, uh, what's his name, Nick Carraway, meets him, and asks Gatsby, who is this guy, Meyer Wolfsheim? Gatsby says, oh, he's the man who fixed the 1919 World Series. And, uh, you know, Nick Carraway's just astounded. He said, I don't know a World Series can be fixed. Well, the 1919 World Series was fixed. The man who uh, was behind it didn't actually start it. He took it over. He was, his name was Arnold Rothstein who was a gambler and a criminal, hated the world. When he was three years old, he said, I hate everybody. <laughs> uh, he was a thoroughly obnoxious person who made a ton of money. He was known as the big bankroll as a gang, uh, gambler, and he was very smart. And he saw this fix of the World Series, which was supposed to be uh, the White Sox playing the Cincinnati Reds, Chicago was heavily favored, and the players on the White Sox were kind of in two separate cliques. They weren't one team. They were two different teams, and they hated each other. The college-educated player, Eddie, Eddie Collins, played second base, and Ray Schalk, who was a sharp guy, who was a good catcher and, and a good person, uh, were the leaders of that faction, and also Red Faber, one of their starting pitchers, and Dickie Kerr, another of their starting pitchers. The other group was made up of Chick Gandall, the first baseman, who was a kind of a tough character, who was a uh, boxer in his spare time, and saw an opportunity to make a lot of money if they could fix the World Series. With him were Happy Felch, the center fielder, who was a dum-dum, who just went along because he thought he could make a few bucks and see the possibility of getting caught. Uh, and they needed more than that. They got two pitchers, um, Lefty Williams and Eddie Sycott. Sycott had a mortgage on his farm in Michigan, and he needed to pay off the mortgage. And he was 33 years old, and uh, Charles Comiskey, the owner, was being very tough to uh, with his players. He didn't want to pay them. He didn't even want to do the laundry. They played in dirty uniforms because uh, he wouldn't pay to have the laundry done. Anyway, Williams and Sycott joined the conspiracy. And then Gandal went after two other players, the great shoeless Joe Jackson, who is not in the Hall of Fame because of the, of the scandal, 
And Buck Weave, a third baseman, was also not in the Hall of Fame, although he was the best third baseman of his time because of the scandal. So those guys, Gandel and Felsch and, uh, and uh, the two pitchers, were crooked. They took money, and they tried to throw games. Jackson took money, but he t- said he tried to give it back. He didn't know what to do with it. Jackson's crime was not anything other than being illiterate and totally uneducated. He came from a mill town in South Carolina, had a tremendous ability to hit the ball, and Babe Ruth said later that Joe Jackson was the greatest hitter in the, in the history of the game, and he patterned his swing after Joe Jackson. Well, Joe Jackson uh, was banned from baseball as a result of the fix, even though he took the money, but he didn't throw any games. He had 375 in the World Series and played honestly. But he did know about the fix, and he did take some money. Buck Weaver never took any money, but he knew about the fix and didn't tell anybody, and he was banned also. And uh, that was a tragedy because Buck Weaver was a good guy, wound up running a drugstore in Chicago, and for years tried to clear his name and never was able to. Well, the fix in 1919 really turned people off, as you can imagine. But Babe Ruth in 1920 with the Yankees set records that had never been heard of before. He hit 59 home runs in 1921. He hit 54 in 1920. He hit 60 in 1927. The game changed entirely. It became a, a game of home runs, power hitting, long ball hitting. With the end of the spitball, which was banned from baseball after the 1920 season, except for those pitchers who still threw it, who hung on for a few more years, uh, the spitball was replaced, it was, was banned rather, the ball was replaced, you had a new ball coming into the game fairly often, uh, you could see the ball better, uh, gloves were improved, equipment was improved, fielders began to make plays that they couldn't have made before, and the baseball as we see it today really emerged around 1920, 1920 season 21. Uh, so that's the, the origins of what you see when you go to the ballpark today. Okay, we are now uh, up to the Depression year. Uh, during the Depression, Depression started in uh, late, 19, 18, late 1929, the Great Depression. During the Depression years, it was tough to get people to come out to the ballpark because they didn't have any money. So the owners did something to get people out to the ballpark. They changed the composition of the ball so that it would be easier to hit for distance and hit harder, and there'd be more hits. And the decade of the 30s was a terrific hitting decade. Um, (laughs) The 1930 Philadelphia Phillies hit 315 as a team, 315 team batting average, and they finished last 50 games out of first place. Many of the hitting records uh, today that still stand were set in the 30s. Uh, Hack Wilson of the Cubs drove in 160, 190 runs. Some people say it was 191, actually. And uh, Lou Gehrig of the Yankees drove in 184, still the American League record. Uh, it was a hitting decade. And that was done deliberately to get people to see a lot of action, a lot of high-scoring games, 
and get people to the ballparks. So, in other words, baseball is not isolated from society. Now, let's go back to another way of that, uh, another example of that. Way back in the 1880s, the Chicago team was run by a man named Adrian Anderson, Anderson, Anson, I'm sorry, Adrian Anson, who was called Cap Anson. He was one of the great players in history, first player to get 3,000 hits in his career. But he was also the manager. At that time, there were a couple of black players in Major League Baseball. Anson decided that his team would not take the field against any black player, any team with a black player. Obviously, all Anson was trying to do was not have a, such good competition. He wanted his team to you know, be able to win the game. So uh, he took advantage of the prevailing racism of the late 19th century. You may think that uh, Jim Crow began with the end of the Civil War and the end of slavery. That's not true. The decades of the 1880s and 1890s, up, right up until 1900s, were the origin of Jim Crow. And Cap Anson simply took advantage of it. There never was a rule of any kind, never was any kind of formal rule that black people couldn't play the major leagues. It was, quote, a gentleman's agreement, unquote, that the owners would not hire black players. But let an owner try to break the agreement. Uh, the New York Giants wanted a black player, they wanted several black players, but they weren't allowed to, to have them. They tried to get them by as, quote, Cubans or American Indians, anything but, uh, but black, but uh, they weren't able to get away with it. So for many years, from 1880 on, baseball was strictly segregated. There were, of course, Negro Leagues. The black leagues uh, had some terrific players. If you go to Kansas City, Missouri today, you can visit the Black Baseball Museum. And it's absolutely fascinating. I was there uh, last year for the first time. I didn't want to leave. I was there for, I don't know, two hours. And it was so interesting uh, to see and, and see the accomplishments of all the people, including the owners, some of whom were black, some were white. Um, it, the black leagues lasted, of course, until after the integration of the game, which took place in Jackie Robinson in 1947. And there's a story about that, too. Um, but baseball remained segregated just by the so-called gentleman's agreement. Why did it change? Well, what happened between 1941 and 1945? The United States got into a war with Germany and Japan. The war with Germany was largely over Germany's um, Nazis' belief that some people, i.e. Germans, were better than other people, i.e. anybody else, especially Slavs, uh, homosexuals, and Jews. Uh, and they went further than just not liking them. They killed them as much as they could. They killed people off. Well, here we were fighting a war against racism and, uh, and uh, prejudice. Well, at the same time, America was segregated especially the southern states, and certainly unfair in many ways, and baseball was one of them. Baseball was segregated. That was something that could not go on after World War II. It just wasn't possible anymore because the war had been fought against this kind of uh, 
thinking about people. And then Harry Truman did something as President of the United States that brought on integration in baseball. In 1946, Harry Truman issued an executive order desegregating the Army and Navy of the United States. I don't know if people today know this, but in World War II, if you were a enlisted man in the Navy and you were black, you weren't given uh, ordinary work to do. You were assigned to the kitchen crew. You know, you weren't uh, given a gun. It's just it was just horrible when you think about it, and that was the way it was. Well, Truman desegregated the armed forces with an executive order. He didn't wait for Congress. He took action on his own, and that was a big step towards integrating baseball. The man who integrated baseball, in fact, you can see the movie. It's still playing. Go see 42, the Jackie Robinson story. If you haven't seen it yet, go see it. Harrison Ford plays Branch Rickey. Branch Rickey was the co-owner and general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Previously, Rickey had had a long career in baseball. He had been a uh, catcher after coming out of the University of Michigan, and he played professional baseball with the St. Louis Browns as a catcher. And believe it or not, Branch Rickey still holds the major league record for passed balls by a catcher in an, I think it's in an inning or in a game, one or the other. Uh, the pass ball is when the catcher doesn't pass, doesn't catch the ball he should have caught. And he had something like five pass balls in an inning. <laughs> something horrible. He was a terrible player. But he also had a terrific talent for judging players and, uh, and being able to see who was going to be a great player. He built the St. Louis Cardinals team. Uh, see, you see the St. Louis connection? He had played in St. Louis. He was hired to run the Cardinals in the 1920s. The Cardinals were a poor team in those days. They didn't have money. They couldn't go out and buy players from the lower minor leagues the way other teams had been doing since 1876. They had an alternative that Ricky dreamed up. He signed high school kids right out of school at very cheap prices and then used uh, whole squads of them and picked out the best ones and promoted them to a series of teams that he owned at different levels. The Cardinals didn't buy players. They put their money into franchises. And the players would, uh, as Ricky said, the good ones would turn to money, and then he'd sell them to other teams. And the very best ones he kept for the Cardinals. Well, he built the Cardinal team that won World Series in 1934, um, and then, toward the late 30s, he moved on from St. Louis to Brooklyn after building another Cardinal team that won the World Series in 1942, uh, 1944, no, 19, and 1940, no, 41, 42, and 44, 42, well, I'm summoning that, <laughs> 46, 46 was the other one. Anyway, Ricky put that team together, but he didn't stay in St. Louis. He got into the Brooklyn franchise about 1941. Why did he do this? Now, uh, I talked to a black sports writer in New York uh, some years ago, and he had been writing at the time Ricky owned the Dodgers. Yes, are we running out of time? Hello? Hello? Can you yeah, are we running out of time? Oh, you want him to? You want him to answer? Uh, 
I want to finish the story. If we can. Hello? Are you still there? Oh, go ahead. Okay, I'm going to finish the Branch Rickey story and then we'll, we'll call it off. Okay, but we'd like to have some questions, if it's okay. Yeah, okay. We'll do that right after I finish this run. Hey, one this Ricky story. Uh, he, this writer, had asked Ricky when he came to the Dodgers, how long is it going to be until we can have integrated baseball? And Mr. Ricky told him, not very long. Just be patient for a few more years. Did Ricky come to Brooklyn with the intention of using the Brooklyn franchise to integrate baseball? I think he did. He couldn't do it in St. Louis because St. Louis was a segregated city. Yeah. St. Louis was a southern uh, oriented. But in Brooklyn, he could do it. And in 1946, he signed Robinson to a minor league contract. And in 1947, broke the color line. And uh, that's the, the, well, probably the most important thing that's been done in baseball for a long time, or maybe ever. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make here is that baseball is not isolated from trends in society. And today, if you notice, uh, there are many, many Hispanics in baseball today. Mm -hmm. and it's the, now the biggest minority in the country, and it's the biggest minority in baseball, too. Okay, time to take questions. Anybody in every, anything in anybody? Okay, Bob, do we have any, you have any questions or anyone with questions? If you don't, I do. Hello? I'm here. Okay. Uh, okay, I have a question, and this may be a, not, where did uh, the seventh inning stretch and that song take me out to the ball game? When did that oh, Okay, okay. Uh, the seventh inning stretch may may have something to do with the fact that the President of the United States would come to the opening game of the season uh, in Washington for many years. Uh, William Howard Taft started that tradition when he was President of the United States. He had been an amateur player and loved the game, wanted to be a ball player, didn't want to be a, an attorney and a president and a Supreme Court justice. He wanted to be a ball player as a kid. But he got hurt, and he couldn't play, so he became a fan. Uh, the story goes that the president uh, couldn't stay for the whole nine innings. He got up in the seventh inning and left the park. But when the president got up, everybody else in the park got up in respect to the president. And that's one story about the uh, origin of the seventh inning stretch. It may or may not be true. Uh, another story is the seventh inning was regarded as... Uh, a lucky inning, supposedly. And you'd stretch in the seventh inning because you wanted to stretch, but also to encourage the home team to get some runs in this lucky seventh inning. Uh, I don't know if there's an answer to that question, but those those are two possible answers. Uh, what was the other one? Take me out to the ball game. Oh, take me out to the ball game. The song was written by a guy named Jack Norworth, who was married to a... Uh, what would you call her, a, a singer, uh, a cafe singer. And the reference to Cracker Jack, I think, was is there because the Cracker Jack company paid him to put it in. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a waltz. It's a romantic song. Dun, ba, da, 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 da. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. You can dance to it. Yeah. And, it, of course, it caught on and became the 
anthem of baseball, and uh, you hear it all the time. Uh, this was about 1905 that he wrote that song. And he was a pretty important composer in those days. So uh, it was a hit, and it's still a hit. Mm -hmm. Anybody okay. else got a question? Or I got another question. What? Do you have another question? Hang on, I think there are... Ron, we need to have the bridge. Dan, uh, why I don't miss Hawaii after you live there for a Okay, let's begin. I think, Ruthann, if you can't hear me, knock on the wall or something. Um, let us, just as Ira is a White Sox fan, and I'm a great Cub fan, let me bring on one of the great baseball fans, the chairman of our sports talk program at 12 noon on Saturday, Eastern Time, John Bolia. I know he's got a question. He loves Boston. John, do you have a question tonight? Not really. It's been very interesting. Because uh, I've got one ear here and one ear in the other room with the first place Red Sox. And it looks like they'll stay in first place. Uh, they're having a big eighth inning rally. Uh, very interesting, though. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, the... Uh, commentary and uh, obviously uh, you've put a lot of study into it and uh, um, that's it I guess uh, a good presentation and I'm anxious for uh, the up and coming uh, presentations uh, that go along with this Okay, well, let me ask a question, the final one here, I think. They say a curveball. A curve is an optical illusion. You're going to have trouble explaining it to some blind guy here, me. But uh, what does that mean? What, is, what happens with a curveball? Is it real or not, Ira? What's the question? Okay, he wanted to know about a curveball. Is it an optical illusion? Oh, uh, no, it is not an optical illusion. A curveball really does curve. Uh, it was discovered by accident way back in about in the 19th century. Uh, there's some some question as to who it was. Uh, a guy by the name of Candy Cummings, Arthur Cummings, claimed to have invented the curveball, discovered the curveball. Russell Ford uh, was a pitcher who claimed to have discovered the curveball. But what it is, the way it's thrown with the spin on it, it goes straight for a while, and then as it approaches the ball, the the plate. The spin that's put on the ball makes the ball break, usually down and away, according to the uh, way whether the right pitcher is right-handed or left-handed. If it's a right-handed pitcher throwing to a right-handed batter, a right-hander's curveball breaks down and away from a right-handed hitter. A left-hander's curveball would break down and into a right-handed hitter. A left-hander's curveball breaks down and away from a left-handed hitter. And a right-hander's curveball goes down and in to a left-handed hitter. Wow. Wow. It's all, it's all done with the spin on the ball. Now, the one that uh, they all say, all, this, all the physicists um, say is impossible, is the, 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 uh, the hopping fastball. But the batters will tell you, <laughs> uh, they, they tell you, it does hop, you know. They, when Sandy Koufax was pitching for the Dodgers, uh, Koufax only had two pitches. He could throw a curveball and he could throw a fastball. 
That's all he could do. But his fastball was so powerful, it seemed to jump over the batter's bat. The hitter would swing at it, and the ball wasn't there. Uh, the physicist said it was impossible. And the player said, you never hit against Koufax. <laughs> so uh, you have your money, you take your choice. Um, what the ball does is what the pitcher makes it do by the way he throws it, the way he will twist his wrist, the way he'll cock his wrist, the way he holds the ball, uh, the way he holds the seams of the ball, whether he uses his nails, whether he uses his knuckles. Uh, it all comes down to the way the ball is thrown. And pitchers can do amazing things with the ball. They have to because major league hitters are so talented that they can hit anything that's straight. I don't care how hard you throw. You can throw 110 miles an hour. You can throw 120 miles an hour. If it goes straight, the hitters will catch up with it, and the hitters will hit it. If the ball it must be made to, to move in order to keep the hitters from hitting it because these are the most talented players in the world. And today it is a world game, no question. The American major leagues have players from many countries and many parts of the world. We have Asian players. We have Latin American players. Uh, occasionally you can get a European player. Um, and they are the best there are. I was watching the Detroit Tigers the other day, Miguel Cabrera. Oh, man, can he hit. Hmm. This guy is phenomenal. He won the Triple Crown last year, the first time it's been done in, uh, since 1967. Uh, it hasn't been done in the National League since 1937. Nobody's hmm. won the Home Run Championship, the Batting Average Championship, and the RBI Championship in the same year. Cabrera did it last year, and he may do it again this year. Just phenomenal. Well, I wrote on behalf so could of... Could I ask you a question, Bob? Well, one um, more, and then we got to go okay, on. Okay, well, maybe this is something that he'd want to talk about in one of the other next uh, things. But can you talk about some of the great broadcasters of the... Oh, sure. Oh, sure. He'll, he'll do it. There's That's so okay. many There's so many things to say. I didn't even finish with the history because I didn't oh, no. get to the um, free agency and right. today, yeah. the drug problems. Right, we have the Kurt Flood, the whole thing with Jensi and... Uh, and Ira will cover that. Ira, yeah. we want to thank you so very much. You, you just do such great research, and I love baseball. This is just wonderful, and I, we all thank you very, very much. Well, I uh, just hope uh, you'll invite me back and we do some more of it. We will. I we promise. Will. I'll be in touch. Okay. I thank you, sir. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, bye. Good night.